Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. In our series called Mission Redemption, and we are following the Gospel of John as well as the other Gospel accounts intertwined, to see the narrative of Jesus' fulfillment of the mission that his Father gave him to come to earth to redeem lost sinners like you and like me. And as we pick up the narrative today, it is that first Good Friday, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. It is in the early morning hours of daylight. Jesus is now a prisoner of the state, having undergone three trials before the Jews, each of which had aspects that were illegal under Roman law. Even though the last one was held before the full body of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. In that trial, Jesus had admitted to his claim to be the Son of God, and they had pronounced him guilty, guilty of blasphemy, and worthy of death. But now the Jews faced the legal barrier of having him put to death, which they had no right to do under Roman law, being under Roman dominion, they were bound by the law of Rome. If it had been their choice, they would have had him stoned. That was the Jewish method of execution. But that was not the Father's plan. Because Jesus had spoken prophetically of how he would die in John chapter 12, verse 32, when he said, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Referring, of course, to the cross. So the Jews needed something political with which to charge Jesus before Rome. And there was no valid charge. So they continued their evil ways, their deceit, and their lying. And they brought the bogus charge of treason. We see in Luke's gospel how the narrative begins to unfold. Luke 23, beginning with verse 1. Then the entire council, meaning the Sanhedrin, took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. I know most of you, especially if you grew up in church, are familiar with this part of the the biblical narrative, but I think maybe to help us hear it with fresh ears and see it with new eyes, it would be helpful to to kind of uh, enumerate the cast of characters in this grand drama of redemption. So let me do so. First of all, at the center of everything is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God the loving Savior who is fully aware of everything that is about to happen to him, understanding that it is a part of the Father's mission of redemption. And then there are the Jews, Caiaphas, Annas, and the Sanhedrin, corrupt, 
vile religious leaders who have turned temple worship into a financial enterprise and a structure of power over the people of the Jews. They are bent on the assassination of Jesus. And then there's the Roman official Pontius Pilate. He was appointed by Caesar to rule over the province of Judea on behalf of Rome. He was a Spain-born Gentile, meaning a non-Jew, who though he ruled over the Jews, he hated the Jews, and the feeling was more than mutual. Pilate is already experiencing turmoil under his rule in that there have been several uprisings among the Jews, and one of them turned out so badly he had some of the Jews beaten to death. And the reports have gotten back to Rome, and so he is under investigation by Caesar and the authorities. And he realizes if there's one more major problem, that he will lose his position of power and influence and wealth. So Pilate is paranoid Later on, after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate would be removed. He would be banished to a place called Gaul. And extra-biblical sources tell us that he committed suicide. Then also representing Rome, there was Herod Antipas. Uh, He was one of three sons of Herod the Great, who was ruling over Rome, This is the same man who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was an exceedingly cruel and mean individual. But in a strange twist to the story, he was fascinated by the supernatural, and he desperately wanted to have an encounter with Jesus to make Jesus perform some miracle to amuse him. And we'll see that come into play in the narrative later. And then finally, there was the criminal Barabbas. Imprisoned near the site of Jesus' trial, Barabbas was a notorious political revolutionary. He was a murderer. He had killed individuals. He was imprisoned for murder. And he was awaiting execution. And all of the people knew of the reputation of this evil man named Barabbas. So with that cast of characters, we pick up the narrative in John's Gospel, chapter 18, Jesus having already undergone three trials before the Jews, and now will unfold us before us the, the first trial before Pontius Pilate. But before we look at the trial, let me make this personal. Let me let me try to impress on you that this is not just a history lesson in biblical history. This is a very personal lesson because just like Pilate, you must decide what to do with Jesus. So let's see the story. John 18, beginning with verse 28. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. That's called the Praetorium. That's where Pilate resided. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. 
I don't want you to miss the irony here. Uh, the, the Jews were meticulous in their keeping of the, not just the biblical teaching, oh, far more than that. They had added a whole system of rules and, and regulations, and that had been a major point of conflict with Jesus, especially dealing with the Sabbath, for they had added all of their rules. And a part of their self-imposed regulations meant that they could not enter the home of a Gentile, a non-Jew, during Passover season. It would render them unclean ceremonially. And how ironic it is that they would be so meticulous about those things at the same time they were lying and conniving to have Jesus executed. Verse 29, so Pilate, the governor, went out to them, And he asked, what is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. And you can sense in the the sarcasm there, the animosity between Pilate and the Jews. And you can also sense in the brazen statement of the Jews that they felt they had some leverage in this situation. Though he represented Rome, who was ruling over the Jews, they understood that if there was one more uprising under Pilate, that he could lose his position, and he knew that. And so they were emboldened to be combative and sarcastic toward Pilate. So verse 31, Pilate says, Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. I want you to understand what happened in that moment. Pilate didn't understand what it was they were seeking after, but when they said we are seeking after legal permission to execute this man, that was like a slap in the face to Pilate. He knew he had a desperate dilemma on his hands. It became absolutely clear they were seeking blood. They were looking for a way to have Jesus killed. And so Pilate was caught in this this difficult tension between trying to appease the Jews and avoid an uprising and still maintaining adherence to Roman law. And so he tries to balance the two. And in the Roman legal system, which is very much in some ways like our legal system, in their system there were four phases that one must go through in order to be executed. There was the accusation phase, there was the interrogation, there was the defense, and then finally the verdict. And so in order for Jesus to be interrogated, that second phase, Pilate pulls him in. Verse 33, then Pilate went back to his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? I don't want you to miss the the profound way in which Jesus responded to him. 
What he, in essence, was saying to Pilate is really the same thing he's saying to us. What really matters is, what do you decide in the answer to that question? What is your decision about me? Pilate tries to deflect the question. Verse 35, am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? They were accusing Jesus of treason under Roman law, which would have meant that he was trying to overthrow the Roman government and establish his own civil ruling government with him at the head. Jesus makes clear that's not what he was about. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was saying to Pilate, yes, I have a kingdom. But it's not the kind of kingdom that you understand or that the Jews understand. It's not a kingdom of human might and power and weapons and authority. Pilate said, verse 37, So you are a king, Jesus responded. You say, I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. You see, when Pilate thought of kingship, he thought of power. He thought of control. He thought of earthly authority. But the true king, Jesus, was not about those things. He was about truth. And when we put faith in him and we learn of him, Jesus reorients our perspective and our power to that kind of kingdom. Verse 38, what is truth? Pilate asked. Let me just stop in the middle of that verse and say how tragic it is. Pilate actually asked the right question. What is truth? But not believing there was an answer, he didn't even stop to turn to the one who is the truth. But he turned away. Verse 38 continues, then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime. He really ruled rightly. He pronounced Jesus not guilty. He had the courage to issue the right verdict, but not the courage to enforce it. And so when the Jews pushed back, when they became resistant, Pilate chose to keep his job rather than to protect his soul. John 18, verse 39. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Luke's gospel account fills in a gap here. So look with me at Luke 23, beginning with verse 4. Pilate turned to the leading priests into the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent, 
but he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. Here's why that was significant. Pilate sees a possible out. He sees a a way that he perhaps could pass the buck to someone else. He believes that Herod Antipas could be the one who would have to be responsible, that he could be the scapegoat, that he would have to be the one to pronounce Jesus' fate, and that Pilate would be released from responsibility and thus out of trouble. Verse 7, when they said that he was, meaning Jesus was a Galilean, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And then note verse 8, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. Herod was fixated on the supernatural, and so he wanted to be entertained by Jesus. He had heard of Jesus' healings. He had heard that he had fed the crowds with a few fishes and loaves. I'm sure he'd even heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He wanted Jesus the magician to do some magic tricks. But the king of glory doesn't put on a magic show. He doesn't seek to entertain those he created. He wouldn't do it for Herod, and he doesn't do it for us. And can I just stop here and make a theological statement? I think there is is a form of this in Christianity today in what's commonly been called the name-it-and-claim-it theology that teaches if you have enough faith or say certain words or pray a certain way or believe a certain way, whatever you ask God to do, he must do. As if there is a a passive-aggressive sort of way we can manipulate God into a corner and he has to jump through hoops for us. So can I just say our sovereign God doesn't jump through hoops. Does he honor our prayers? Yes, Humble prayers from sincere hearts matter to him. And prayer does make a difference in the way a sovereign God acts. How, we don't understand, but we are taught to pray and to believe that he can do anything within his will, but we must pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. But Herod wanted his will to be done. He wanted Jesus to perform at his command, and he got nothing. Verse 9, he asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. If Jesus had been in the presence of just people, of people who had a clear moral compass, who who could see right from wrong and have the courage to act on. They would have shut this down. They could see that Jesus didn't deserve what was happening to him, that all he had done was love people and heal people 
and teach people the truth about the kingdom of God. If Jesus had been in the presence of just people, but Jesus wasn't in the presence of just people. They didn't even know that before them stood the king of glory who could have called down 10,000 angels at his defense. But he willingly endured the shame, the sacrilegious taunting of Herod's men. Verse 11, then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. I want you to picture what's happening with Pilate. As he has sent Jesus away to Herod Antipas, he has retreated back into his, his place of business and residence, the Roman Praetorium. He's thinking that, that that problem is off of his plate. He's done with Jesus. He's done with the Jews. Things are settling back down, and he can be once again back about his business. But as he settles in, He begins to hear the movement of people outside the building. He begins to hear the the roar of a crowd as it's coming nearer and nearer. And then he hears the footsteps of Herod's soldiers once again bringing Jesus before him. And he realizes that his effort at diversion to escape responsibility for Jesus had failed. And so once again, he encounters Jesus' accusers. Luke 23, verse 13. Then Pilate called together the leading priest and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. Don't you find it tragic that Pontius Pilate would be willing to have an innocent man whipped brutally with a whip that at the end of each lash was a piece of lead that would rip his flesh. He was willing to do that, though he was innocent, just to appease the Jews and try to keep the peace and try to keep his own position of power. Pilate was under pressure. He was under pressure from Rome to keep the peace with the Jews. He was under pressure from the Jews to have Jesus executed. But Matthew's gospel tells us there was one more direction from which Pilate was also under pressure. Look at it with me, Matthew 27, verse 19. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Pontius Pilate was indeed in the quintessential between a rock and a hard place dilemma. He could not escape it. He must decide what to do with Jesus. 
And the Jewish leaders were working the crowd to make sure that he would not have an option. Verse 20, meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. Pilate had thought, surely the crowd would not ask for this notorious murder and insurrectionist to be released when they look at how, how little the evidence of Jesus against Jesus was and how great the reputation of this renowned criminal was, surely they would want Jesus to be released and not Barabbas. But he underestimated the vicious anger and hatred of the Sanhedrin. Verse 21, So the governor, Pilate, asked again, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him! Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him! Pilate must have felt in that moment like a political python had wrapped itself around him and was beginning to squeeze the very life out of his situation. And there was no avenue of escape. Verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Pilate took the bowl of water and and performed this symbolic act to say, the blood of Jesus is not going to be on my hands. I have found him innocent. And yet, it did not release him from that responsibility And it has been said that Pilate spent the rest of his life trying to wash the blood off his hands until he took his own life. Verse 25, and all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. We and our children, they were saying, let it fall on us. We are responsible. We pronounce him guilty. We condemn him as a fake and a fraud and a heretic. They made their decision about Jesus. And can I tell you that really nothing has changed? People today, you and I, everyone, must make a decision about Jesus. And the decisions people make really fall basically into one of three categories. There are those who ignore the gospel. They just believe it doesn't matter, it's not true, it's not worthy of my notice. I don't care anything about church or God. If there is a God, the Bible is just a book of fairy tales. And they ignore the gospel thinking that absolves them of any responsibility. And then there are those who reject the gospel. That's what the Pharisees did. They heard the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God, 
that he would be lifted up, that he would rebuild the temple, and they thought that he meant the physical temple, the place of worship when he was talking about the temple of his own body, speaking of his crucifixion and resurrection. They heard the truth about Jesus, but they outright rejected. There are people today who reject the gospel. And then there are those who believe the gospel. I pray you're in that group that believe the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of our love, worthy of our commitment. But, but what I want this message to say to all of us is that there, just like there was for Pilate, just like there was for the Jews, there is a decision that cannot be avoided. You must decide what to do with Jesus. And so I ask you, which of those three categories describes you? In the end, whether he wanted to or not, Pilate made a decision to reject and condemn the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Verse 26 is our last verse. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. I leave you with two simple next steps, depending on which category you fall in. First of all, if you're not a Christ follower, I urge you, decide today to put your faith in him. If you're not sure what that means or you're not sure if you've done that, I'm going to wait for a while down here at the front. If you'd like to come talk, I'm willing and available to do that. It's the most important decision. And, and if you think you cannot make a decision, that just puts you in the first group that seeks to ignore the gospel. And in reality, there's no difference in re- ignoring it and rejecting it. If you are not a Christ follower, decide today, put your faith in him. And then, and I know this is most of us here watching online and in the room, if you are a Christ follower, decide today and every day to live with gratitude for what he's done for you. How can we be sinful and selfish when we look at what Christ endured for us? You must decide. Let's pray. Father, we must make many decisions in life, but there is no decision as important as the one that each of us must make that impacts not only the rest of our life here on earth, but our eternal soul, the decision of what to do with Jesus. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not made that decision to trust in him and to follow him with their life, I I pray that they might be willing to take that step of faith and to trust in the only one who can save them and give them eternal life. And for those of us who know you, I pray, Lord, that we would live with such overwhelming gratitude that it would cause us 
to become students of the Scripture and doers of the Word to the honor and glory of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great Sunday.